0: This message by Sam Shin entitled The Goal of the Christian Life Part 1 was recorded at Spring Church on October 6, 2019. The text for this message is 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 and we'll read that together. I'll read it that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. So we are beginning a new series on 1 John, and I don't know how many of you have spent any time in John's letters, in particular the first letter, but... You might know something of John. John has one of the most oft-quoted verses of the Bible, John chapter 3 verse 16. And if you have been a Christian for any time, you probably have memorized that verse. And one thing you know about that verse is that that verse speaks of love. So I think when we think of John, we think of John the the loving disciple or the beloved disciple. And so when you think about then, okay, here is John as a loving, beloved disciple of Jesus. So you can imagine that if John is going to write a letter to a church, it would probably be filled with love. And if you think that, you are absolutely right. It is. But it's also a letter that really speaks to the church and digs deep into the soul, and questions, do you actually believe in Jesus? If so, what does your life look like? And he doesn't believe that those two are exclusive from one another. He believes that the two actually come together, and to follow Christ is to understand love, but to follow Christ is to also obey, even when it is most difficult. And there are many different influences in this world that keeps us from both loving and obeying. And so the question is, how do we, how do we do this? How do we actually live as a believer of Christ, knowing that there is great cost to follow him, as well to trust him is where we need to be. And John makes it so clear that There is a grave danger to our souls, and it resides not just outside the church, but it resides inside the church. And within the church, there's a lot of self-deception. There's false teaching. There's a hardness of heart. There's a worldliness that has come from outside the world and has crept into the church. And the most dangerous part of all is that we might not even realize it's happening. And so John is constantly attacking these points to make certain that we know what we believe, why we believe it, who we believe and who we trust, and he doesn't give us any quarter to hide. It's going to be a journey for us together in this to actually really be open to what God wants to say to you, say to me. That it's not just simply going to be sitting in the back and saying, or in the front or in the middle, and saying, that's a nice message. That's really nice and it teaches me how to live my life to be a good mom or a good dad or to do well in school or to be a good member of society. That's not the purpose of John. And it's not the purpose of the gospel. Instead, it is to follow Christ to believe him, and to know that there is an eternal joy that awaits us. So in this first message, I'd like to set off on this journey in John's first letter by answering two foundational questions. One is very easy. The second one has a greater challenge to it. The first is in verses 1 and 2 and answers the question of, who is John? And then second is answering the second question, the more fundamental question, not just of this letter, but of a Christian, Why is he writing this letter in verses 3 and 4? We're going to cover the why both this week and next week because we'll cover two reasons why and then the third reason next week. So first in verses 1 through 2, who is John? John answers this question just by the first two verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, Concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. The we refers to the twelve now apostles, but were disciples. They were men called by Jesus to follow him, to leave whatever they were doing. And to trust and to follow regardless of the consequences of what would happen to them. John was a fisherman. So he was a blue-collar worker. He was the son of Zebedee with his brother James. The two of them had a nickname, the Sons of Thunder. And they were generally mild-mannered, but every once in a while would just say things like, Jesus... I want you to cast down fire from from heaven and burn up those people because they're not listening to you. They also fought over who was the greatest. He he really was a a young man, but a sort of arrogant, like many young men are, um, like all of us go through in, in stages of life. He was a letter, a writer of a letter, and a writer of a gospel. He's often self-described in that gospel as the beloved disciple. And so he had a very special, unique relationship with Jesus. Jesus spent a lot of time with Peter, James, and John, sort of an inner circle of three people. And then there was the next layer of disciples. Also, he wrote the final book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, and there we know that John was exiled on an island called Patmos. And he spent the rest of his days, until he was to die, on this island. And he received this vision of heaven and of the end times. So this is John. Very basic, very simple. I would say many of you probably know that story of John. That's not so unfamiliar to you. But really, the next question is the one that we're going to spend the most of our time with today. And it's, why is he writing this letter? And what is this all about? And so you have to keep this week and next week in mind throughout as we constantly go back to this purpose. Because the purpose is going to help us to understand all of the different points that John makes throughout this letter. And in it, there are, again, two reasons that we'll cover today as to why he is writing this letter. First, he wants to proclaim the gospel. For John... According to verse two, he is proclaiming. He is testifying. He wants to tell a story. And this isn't some forced story that, or a philosophy or a teaching. For John, it's good news. It's, it's not something he can hold in because, as I shared last week, the nature of good news is that you want to tell it. You want to tell anybody who is around you who will hear. Because if News is truly good news, then the, the consequence of that is that you're going to tell people about it. Another thing about this testimony is that it's not about John's feelings about Jesus and what he experienced in terms of just simply his emotions, you know, all the, the different happenings is just, he's, he's not giving a journal entry about it. Instead, he's writing a, a truth. It's not a theory. It's not a hypothesis. It's not a philosophy. John isn't thinking, I want to start a new religion. And so I'm going to write this story about Jesus because I really want to be the founder of this religion. And so we have to get away from the idea that John is, in some way, a religious writer. That's not who John is. He doesn't allow himself to be thought of that way. In fact, in John chapter 21, verse 24, he says this. This is the disciple, and he's talking about himself. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and was written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. This is not a something that he thinks happened for him. This is truth. The, his fellow apostle Peter makes this same claim. He says this for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but We were eyewitnesses to his majesty. In other words, for Peter and John and for Jesus, Jesus will not let you sort of follow him because he's a nice person. He's a religious teacher. He's a philosopher. He's a a moral ethicist. He isn't a great teacher like Buddha or Confucius. He doesn't allow us to go down that road. I was reading an interview um, with Bono, you know, the lead singer from U2. And he was asked a question uh, by this interviewer. Christ has his rank among the world's greatest thinkers, but son of God, isn't that far-fetched? I really actually like Bono's response. I thought, that is a great way to describe the gospel. And this is what he says. No, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy. Had a lot to say along the lines of other prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. And I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We've had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because, you know, we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps. But actually, I am the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and says, oh, my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either Christ uh, was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. This man was strapping himself to a bomb and had Kings of, King of the Jews on his head. And as they were putting him up on the cross, was going, Okay, martyrdom, here we go. Bring on the pain. I can take it. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half of the globe could have its fate changed on and turned upside down by a nutcase for me, that's far-fetched. I actually really agree with him totally. Actually, C.S. Lewis says quite the same thing, that Jesus is either lunatic, liar, or Lord. But you just cannot call him he's a nice guy with really great words and has a, a, a good morality. That's not who Jesus is. Or at least he doesn't let you call him that. John doesn't let you call him that. John declares or proclaims or testifies that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is not a teacher. He tells us that He has seen, He has heard, He has looked upon, He has touched the Word of Life, this Jesus. This isn't something that He has doubts with or He's 99% sure that Jesus is everything He said He promises to be. No, He's certain, John is certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that He is everything Jesus claimed to be. That's the point that now he's telling us. There's no halfway point. There's no, I mostly follow Jesus. It's either you follow him, you believe him, you trust him with your life, you give him everything, or you actually are not following him at all. He leaves us no room to sort of follow him. It's follow him or not. And that's a quite a great challenge for Christians, for churchgoers. You cannot follow Jesus and follow the world. Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. So to be a Christian means you actually have to follow him. You have to trust him. For John, the way that came about is, he said first it was by hearing. He believed by hearing, according to verse 1. Jesus' words are what began to sink deep into his soul. It started to change him. Notice that it's not a subjective experience. It's an objective experience. It's what he heard. It was a word outside of himself. It wasn't something that he felt, sort of a mystical transformation. It was based on a word. In other words, what does Jesus say? And how then shall I live in light of what Jesus says? That is what a Christian inherently does. We don't go to the world and say, well, I feel this way, and so therefore I follow Jesus. That's not how it works. It's Jesus wrote through his word, by his spirit, scripture. And everything that we feel, we always go back to the word and say, what does Jesus say about this? And we go back to scripture and then we test it according to, and we'll see that in 1 John 4, 1, test the spirits through his word ultimately. That it always has to be, what does the Bible say? We taught our kids a very simple song. Jesus loves me, this I know. For, that means, you know, ground. For the Bible tells me so. What a wonderful song to teach your kids. And you've taught your kids That song. But do you know, do you believe that to be true? That is to say that the only way that your child knows that Jesus loves that child is not because they come to church on Sunday, or because you're a Christian parent, or because you act morally. The only way they know that Jesus loves them is the Bible tells them so. Now, if we teach our children that, here's my question to you, do you believe that? That everything you know about this world, what is true, what is right, what is good, what is moral, what is just, always stands on God's word alone. Nothing less, nothing more. John says that it is by hearing the words of Christ taught that he's able to see that when push comes to shove, God's word remains central. And it is the means by which we determine how to live, how to make decisions, how to act. It's a scary thought when you think about that, that how can we ever know what is right or good in our society if it's simply determined by our subjective experience? If subjective experience determines what is right or true, God help us. That's what happened in Nazi Germany in Stalin's Soviet Union. The idea that a person can determine morality simply based on their idea or society And then whatever society thinks is true is that's what's right. We fall into a deathly trap when we think that what I feel is the sole determiner upon which how I live. As a Christian, as one who is following Christ, what we have most of all is God's Word. That's what stands the test of time. And that's what upholds a person, a family, a society, a church. Lose that and we lose everything. I heard an incredibly disturbing and sad story this week, which tragically illustrates this far too well. A late-term abortion clinic offers mothers to hold their babies after they have aborted them. So this is the brochure of an abortion clinic, a number of them. Many patients request a remembrance of their baby to take home with them. The following lists items and services that some of our patients have found helpful in their emotional recovery. Every family approaches this experience with their own unique emotional, spiritual, and cultural background. There is no right or wrong way, just your way. Once the process of healing has begun, you, might, you may want to consider a token of the precious time with you and your baby had together. All of these features of our program will be discussed with you while you are with us. And then the brochure begins to list all the different programs that they have, that you can have with your aborted baby. You you can have photos of the baby. You can take the baby's footprints. You can decide to have burial or creation services for this baby. The irony of it is that before that person goes in, the baby is a fetus and nothing more than a piece of skin. But after, you can decide by your own determination of what is true that Now it's really a baby, and you can actually be a part of their life. This is what happens when, as the book of Judges says, they do what is right in their own eyes. When you do what is right in your own eyes, morality gone. It's society that determines what's right. It is you determine what is right. I don't want that power. That is a dangerous place to be. And this is where our world is, is that we have determined that truth is based solely on subjective experience. It's a world where feelings and experiences matter more than the truth of God's word. And it doesn't take much to get to this place. When what we feel, what we have pleasure with, what our anger results to, what our injustice feels, when fear determines everything, suddenly we make decisions based not on scripture, but solely on subjective experience. For John, and you will see this throughout this letter, hearing God's word, knowing the, the root element of everything we believe is centered on an objective truth. And that is central to the news being good news. Without the objective truth of God's word, there's no such thing as the gospel. There cannot be good news. There's only news. Second is that, gonna go into this a little bit more sweeping, but there's a progression. He saw, he looked upon, he touched with his hands. These are not the same. Seeing is to visibly see, very quickly, a glance, a look. But looked upon has more of the idea of examination, investigation, verification. I think it's interesting John is writing this because he went through this whole process. He saw, saw Jesus maybe as he's fishing with his brother James, and Jesus says, "Come, follow me." And he has no idea who he is, but he just decides, "Oh, I might as well go check it out, see what this guy's like." And then he goes and he looks upon. He he starts examining. He's he's looking at all that Jesus is doing and saying, and something is draw, drawing him, and it's wrestling with his words and who he is, and then from there. He touched with his hands. It's interesting that John is the one who records a lot of Thomas's struggles, the Apostle Thomas, and the idea that Thomas really wrestled with believing and trusting, until I see his hands, his feet, until I put my finger in his side, I will not believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. And Jesus, of course, comes. And John records this, and he sees this interaction between Thomas and Jesus and Thomas touching, and because maybe, maybe deep down, they all wrestled with that, like, oh, it's, I'm glad Thomas did that because I didn't want to be the one that guy. You know so there's this progression of seeing, examining, looking, touching. This is how John describes himself in John 1323 There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples. Whom Jesus loved. John is literally lying. I, I can imagine, you know, have you ever, had, for moms, I see it quite often, a, a child, a young child will lean over and just sort of want to be touching their mom, you know, because there's a, a soothing feeling that that mother gives to that child, just a to touch the feeling of warmth. John is leaning as close as he can to Jesus. He feels loved. And it makes sense that when John is describing the glorious son of God, God the son, in John chapter 1 verse 14, he says, the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. John understood what it meant to have God the son become flesh. He touched him. And so you see throughout this whole letter, you will see this testimony It has to give you assurance that Jesus is everything he said he was, that he is your hope. He is your life. He is your joy. And you can't just simply sit there and say, well, as long as I do the small things that I do, then God loves me. That's not what this letter is about. It's saying, you have to believe, and you have to believe in one who you can touch, you can sense, you want to be with, you delight in. Is it a wonder why our life so often has joylessness, worry, anxiety, weariness, because we actually haven't fully believed this way. We sort of follow Jesus, but without actually having fellowship with him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the just the great pastor at Westminster Chapel, he says this, Assurance is not essential to salvation, but it is essential to the joy of salvation. I love that little quote because that is so true. You don't need assurance of salvation to be saved because that's the gracious power of God. He saves you despite our frailty. But if you want joy, you have to be assured that you're saved. And if you don't have joy in your life, joy is not dependent on circumstances. There are really difficult times that we have in life. And if you haven't ever faced difficult times, you will. But the promise is not you will never have difficult times, but the promise is you will have abundant joy. And the way you have joy is you're assured of your salvation. It's real to you. It's not some mythical abstract idea way out there somewhere. It matters to you every moment of your life. The second reason why he is writing this is to tell us the goal of the Christian life. The goal of this book is also the goal of the Christian life. It's the same thing. And he says it in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you Here's the key. So that, in other words, purpose is coming. The cause and effect. You may, you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This isn't just the goal of 1st John. Again, it's the goal of our lives to have fellowship with us and with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. We must not pass by this too quickly. Think of what he's not saying. He's not saying the goal of the Christian life is to be a pastor. The goal of the Christian life is not to evangelize to the lost. The goal of the Christian life is not to raise your kids in a safe Christian environment or to put them into a Christian school. The goal of the Christian life is not so that your kids will follow Christ. The goal of the Christian life is not to be an evangelist or to be a missionary. The goal of the Christian life is not to marry a Christian spouse. Now, the goal of the Christian life is not to have the right theological answers or to be a superb apologist. These are all blessings of the Christian life. They are fruits of the Christian life, but they are not the goal of the Christian life. And it is so critical to get that Uh, distinction one is a blessing one is a goal all blessings all fruits but you mix that up and you mix up the gospel you mix up the idea of what it means to follow jesus and you don't get joy from that mix-up in fact you get burden worry misery i've seen many well-intentioned good christians who are so miserable Because they've mixed up goal and fruit. The goal is always to be in fellowship with God the Father and with His Son. And the fruit of that fellowship is all of these things and so much more, bountifully more, endlessly more. But when you make the end goal any fruit, when it's simply about being the best Christian possible, then you will be miserable And you will actually lead other people astray. You will get people, because what will happen is that you won't be able to keep that up forever. Eventually you will fail, you will hurt someone. This happens all the time. I do it. In fact, I had to apologize to someone this morning. And I went up to this person, I had to apologize, ask for forgiveness. I mean, to be a Christian is not to be morally perfect. We can't. But to be a Christian is to lean tightly to Christ. And because of that, I can actually ask for forgiveness. I can acknowledge frailty. I can say I need prayer. I can say I am struggling with loving someone because I am in Christ. So we must get this rightly. And the scariest part of all is that you can be a, quote, Christian parent, go to church, and you can call yourself a Christian parent because one, you go to church and two, you're a parent. But you can do that without having fellowship with the father and the son. You can be a preacher teaching about what it means to have fellowship with the father and son and yet have no fellowship with the father and the son. It happens. It is true. You can be a seminary professor, a missionary and do tell people about Jesus all the time, but have no fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's a tragedy. But it does happen in this world. You can be deeply afraid of hell and have no fellowship with the Father and the Son. You can be coming to church every Sunday because you're so afraid of going to hell. And yet, that very fear is actually bringing you to that place because there's no fellowship with the Father and the Son. Jesus came to save us not from hell, but for fellowship. Always remember that. He doesn't come to bring you salvation from hell. He comes to save you for himself. And so the goal of the Christian is to have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And so with that, what does that look like then? First, there are so many. I could have listed about a hundred of these, but I'm going to list only a few for time's sake. First, Fellowship is a trusting relationship. That's what the Greek word koinonia means, really. It's a relationship of trust. And the trust is in your desire to want to know the person, to grow. It's not static. That's basically any relationship, isn't it? If you really want to enjoy fellowship, friendship, relationship with somebody, you actually have to want to know them. And so the more you get to know one another, there's an increasing amount of joy. One key thing is that the means that fellowship, what this means that fellowship is not about trying to gain something from the other person. Once you make the goal of fellowship, trying to gain something from them, companionship, wealth, connections, then that's never fellowship. If it's if it's the gaining of anything other than the joy of that relationship, then it's that's called a transactional partnership. And sadly, I think far too many of us see our relationship with God that way. Perhaps we don't want to be honest about it. But you know this happens when you cry out to God and your whole prayer life and your whole life with the Lord is, give me something, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to be angry with you. That's called transactional partnership. That's no different than me trying to build a relationship with somebody, a friend or a, some person. And it's all about, well, what are you going to give me? How do you make me feel better about myself? That's a transaction. That's a business relationship. And if we think of the Lord of the universe that way, we will never have Koinonia. We'll never have fellowship. It's impossible. Fellowship is enjoying the person for who they are apart from anything you get from them. It's the idea that, and that's why Jesus says, when you pray, first start with saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You never start with anything less than that because you give your worship to God. You trust in him. You want to know him, who he is. And when that happens, you actually get fellowship. You actually grow to like like Him more, to love Him more. You want to be with Him. You delight in Him. You want to know His Word. Secondly is that fellowship is with the Father. He is our Father. Paul says in Romans 8.15 that we can cry out to Him, Abba, Father, as children. Jesus says this about the Father in Matthew 7.11. If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, good give, uh, give good things to those who ask Him? God is not an abstract being. John tells us our relationship is with the Father. He is the perfect Father. He's far better than I will ever be, or any father in this room will ever be. He is gracious. He is long-suffering. He is protective. He is kind. He is fierce in his love for his children. He always wants to bless. He disciplines us when we turn away from him because he doesn't want us to turn away from him. He is never overacting or never reacting. He is never impatient. He is not stern. He is perfectly just. And he is our father. And we have to see him this way. To have fellowship with him is to know him and to know him We must know his word. And his word is what points to his character and his promises. We have to actually believe him above everyone else and everything else. As Paul says in Romans 3, 4, let God be true and every human being a liar. So to know the father is to know his character, to know his character is to know his word, to know his character. And that has to be what controls how we view God without that you won't know how to react to react him, respond to him, especially in times of trial. Thirdly, our fellowship is with his son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship with the Father is only possible through fellowship with the Son. John makes this so clear for us in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. for our sins. There's nothing in us that wants to love God. By default... We do not love God. By default, we only love ourselves. That's our natural, instinctive nature. And so there's fellowship between us and God is impossible. But God sent his son. That's what First John 4.10 says. He sent his son to be the propitiation, to be the averter of wrath. Meaning, we forever remember all the time that we do not deserve this fellowship with the Father. No one does. Not a person in this room. We sang a song that said, we are the vilest." Violist is a very, very strong word. It's a word that, I don't know if you sang that without really thinking about that for a moment. You know who's able to sing about grace more? That we sin, but grace is more? The way you sing about grace more is you know you're the vilest. And until we know we're the vilest, that we actually don't deserve grace, that's when we understand grace. Grace is meant for really, really bad people. Anyone else who doesn't think they're so bad, you don't need grace. Why? Because you're actually, you have something. Even if you have 1%, 99% everything is bad, but that 1%, you've done enough then we're always going to think that 1% is actually good enough for God. Slowly but surely, that 1% takes over, and it's no longer 99%. It moves to the 99%. The 1% is all of our bad stuff. But the vilest don't think that way. The vilest always thinks, I don't deserve anything at all. And that person understands First John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us sent his son. This person understands rebellion. When I say the word rebellion, that person says, that's me. The one percenter who says, actually, I'm pretty good, they don't understand that word rebellion or self-centeredness. They don't really think that Jesus actually had to die that type of death because I'm actually pretty decent but the Bible doesn't let us get away with that. Because once we eke in our goodness, my natural tendency at least is to try to eke in as much as I can and to start saying, I'm not that bad. That person is bad, but not me. This is the great message and the warning that John has for the church, for us, this letter, to say that we can say all we want about believing in Jesus, But if there is no hint of this type of fellowship in our lives with Jesus, then we have to ask the question, do I believe in him? Do I truly believe in him? And John is going to hit this point time and time again. It's not going to be easy to hear this because he's going to constantly be asking, you know, if you really are following Christ, if you say you're not a sinner, then he says the truth is not in you. And the word sinner makes it sound like, again, we have two categories of sin, respectable sins and vilest sins. And if you only see yourself as, quote, the respectable sin person, not the vilest sin person, then he has a word. If you say If you do not say you're a sinner, if you do not say you're a vile sinner, then the truth is not in you. That's a scary thought. So it's going to be a hard message. But it's one if you grasp, love pours out. Grace pours out. Joy is abundant. Fourth, through fellowship with Father and Son, we have true biblical stuck together fellowship. That which we have seen and heard, which we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. Fellowship is not because we went bowling together and had bowling fellowship, but we had a potluck fellowship. That's not what brings fellowship. You can do all those things and not have fellowship at all. You can actually just be in a room together and have fellowship because you're talking about Christ, because he is the center, because Jesus matters more than anything. And I shared last week, the name Jesus for Christians should not be weird. And yet it is. Why is it weird when we bring in Jesus into a conversation? We should be able to flow in and out of conversations I was watching my favorite team win yesterday. And I should be able to talk about a baseball team and Jesus back-to-back without it seeming odd. But for some reason, we have determined that there's a dichotomy, a sort of a a two-separate life line that we live. One is the world and all that we do here, and then the Jesus world. But these two... There should never be a Venn diagram. You know, it should never be the middle circles crossing over. And that's not what John does. He does not allow us to live that life. Jesus doesn't allow us to live that life. According to this verse, fellowship with us is possible only because our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And that is ongoing, regular, all the time. You see yourself a sinner, a vile sinner who does not deserve grace. God gave that to you. For that, you praise Him. You exalt Him. You delight in Him. For that, you extend grace to other people when they mess up. And people will hurt you. They will do terrible things to you. And yet you forgive. You pursue. You show grace and mercy and kindness. And this fellowship then leads to a stuck-together fellowship. We cannot have fellowship together unless we believe that Actually, we deserve nothing less. We don't deserve fellowship with the Father, and yet he gave it to us through his Son. I have learned for, um, I've been here as we've been talking about for 20 years, preaching not the same message. Only 14 years have I been preaching this message. For the first six years of our existence, I preached exactly the opposite. Preached about holiness. Preached about being a great Christian parent. Preached about how to have a great marriage in Christ. Preached about a love for God's Word. All the fruits. I preached the fruits. And I feel as though before God, I did my best to preach those fruits. But you know what happened? Every Sunday, as the years went by, I grew wearisome. You know why? Because I, if someone said, wait, I, Pastor, I prayed 30 minutes today. I would say I prayed 40. I read, I've been reading the Bible and I read the Bible from cover to cover. Well, I read it two times, cover to cover. I'm more ethical, more righteous. But the more you try to do that, the burdens come. You start hiding and feeling like, is someone watching me? And then suddenly I'm trying to be the best husband that I can be based on my own strength. And suddenly I'm trying to be the best parent, the best pastor. And that is such a great weight to bear. It's, it's why I was having a conversation with a friend of mine um, this past week. He had just left his church. You know, I graduated in seminary with about 15 different close friends. I think I'm literally either one or one of two, the last who are still pastoring a church. Most of them had either left and gone to the secular workforce or military chaplains or hospital chaplains. And when I was talking to my friend, he said, I'm just tired. Tired of church ministry. And I think when you... I get it. It is tiring when you're trying to... And I'm not saying he was doing this at all, but for six years of my life, I tried to pastor the church by my own power and strength. By saying I'm... I'm a sinner, yes, but I'm pretty good relative to other people. I don't do the terrible things. And it was exhausting until the Lord showed me the message of the gospel. In 2005, he showed me that actually you're not that good. You're actually a sinner. You're not just a respectable sinner. You're a vile sinner. And I said, Lord, I'm not a vile sinner. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't, uh, I haven't robbed the bank. Haven't murdered anyone. And you know what he showed me? You have. Every time you grow angry, you murder. Every time you look at a person lustfully, you commit adultery. Every time you lie, you destroy. You're a, a, you're a father. Your father is Satan because you're a, you're a liar just like your father. And when I thought of that, I thought, Oh God, help me. I am a sinner. Have mercy on me. I am that tax collector beating my breast saying, because before I was the, I was the, I was the Pharisee. I was the one saying, look at, I'm, at least I'm not like that person over there. And suddenly I began to realize I am that person over there. And when that happened, I began to, my eyes were open and I began to see that people who do quote really bad things, I am the same person. And it wasn't, it was only until then could I be freed from the power of sin and enjoy grace and experience love and find joy. The gospel is the freeing power that we have. I am not better or more moral than any person in this room. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean that I'm more moral than you. I've said that a gazillion times. I will continue to say that. What I have instead is that I have Christ, and I want you to have him too. And when you have Christ, your eyes are opened, like the blind man, Bartimaeus, and you see him, and you see that you were in such a low state, and that Jesus loved you and gave himself for you. And then you have compassion, you show mercy. That God is a good God. He loves you. He cares for you. When that happens, our fellowship is transformed. Do you see how it works? We start showing kindness to one another. We start saying, you know, you're messed up, but I am too. And so we're going to forgive you. I'm gonna love you. And when that happens, then the world will know that we are his disciples because we love one another. Love is hard. It is never ever just simply about romance. The romance, not just of a man and a woman, but of friendship. Every friendship goes through a romance period, a honeymoon period. But love is covenantal commitment. It says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you, just like my Savior is with me. Everything we do as a Christian is derivative based on what Christ has done for us. We lose that, we lose the gospel, we lose everything. But if we have Christ, we have everything. Communion, that's what this is about, a symbol. It's a sign that we are vile, but he has saved us for himself. Because of that, we have fellowship with one another and with Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for teaching us through your word, through John and his words. The beloved disciple. But yet that same disciple ran away from you at your greatest hour of need. But you didn't turn your back on him. When he failed you so miserably, you came and you welcomed him back. And Lord, you used him mightily for your kingdom. And through his words, as we see in this letter, we are able to see that we too need that same mercy and grace. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you save a wretch like me. Help us to see that we also were vile sinners. But we have in you everything that we could ever hope for. Our union, our fellowship is possible because of Jesus Christ. Because you saved us for yourself. So as we come to this table, O Lord, may we come with joy. May we come with gladness. May we come with peace. May we come with freedom. May we come with compassion. And so we thank you and bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.